0: Welcome to Crossroads Church in Rowlett. We're so glad you're here. Join us here for our weekly sermons or visit crossroadsrowlett.org for more information. I don't know how many of you guys remember these commercials. I'm a commercial person. so um, But back in the day, Southwest Airlines had these commercials where something horrible would be happening in your life, and then all of a sudden you would hear the words, want to get away? Does anybody remember those commercials? If you're not remembering them, let me give you uh, one of them that I thought was hilarious just to kind of get you going. Here we go. General, there's been a breach. We need your password so we can lock down the system. My password? Yes, sir, we need your password. The password that I use? Yes, sir, your password. There's been another breach, sir. Right, okay. I-H-A-T-E-M-Y-J-O-B-1. I hate my job, One. Want to get away? Now you can with Southwest fares <laughs> as low as $59 one way. Yes, low fares. How many of you ever had that moment where something has just happened and you're just like, oh my goodness, I wish I could disappear right now? It happens to all of us. Um, This is not my story. Uh, Another pastor friend of mine has happened to one of his staff. Um, And what had happened was uh, they invited a bunch of people over for a party. They loved getting together. Uh, Everybody was having a great time. But have you ever uh, thrown a a party at your house and the people you threw the party for are not picking up on subtle clues that the party is over and it's time for them to leave? Anybody ever been in that position? Um, Well, they found themselves in that position, and uh, the wife was getting really frustrated uh, that these people were staying. It was getting later and later they had little kids and they were like, we're going to be up early in the morning. We need all you guys to get out of here. Um, and so they, they couldn't get the message across. And so the, the wife asked the husband, said, hey, can you come and help me check on the baby for a minute? And so they went into the baby's room and in the baby's room, she was like, I do not know what is wrong with these people. Like we invited them over and they have been staying here. I don't know. I don't know what clues they're not picking up on, but I need them out of my house now. And the husband was like, let me see if I can figure something out. And he went back in the living room to find out that the baby monitor had been on the entire time. want to get away? Like, (laughs) like that's that moment, right? It's all fun when it's happening to somebody else. It is not near as fun when it's happening to you. When it's awkward or embarrassing or you're caught red-handed, it's not quite as funny. We've got a lot to cover today, and so I'm going to ask you to get your handout uh, or your app. We're going to be talking about guilt and shame and the breakthrough that God wants for us. And I want to dive right in because this is a big one. This is huge. I believe that there are people that walked in here today weighed down with guilt and shame and that God desperately wants you to walk out differently today. Like, I believe that with everything that I am. God wants to do something new. Now, if you're new to church, you might be going, I'm kind of surprised that church is wanting to get rid of guilt and shame. A lot of people think that the way churches operate is that we actually like guilt and shame because it keeps you, like, we th- keeps you coming back. It keeps you coming back for more stuff. Like they think of it the same way that restaurants want you to stay hungry or the Dos Equis guy wants you to stay thirsty or whatever it is where you have to keep coming back. And I will tell you, unfortunately, a lot of times through the history of churches, they have used guilt and shame as a motivator for people. Let me guilt you into doing something. Let me shame you into doing something. If I make you feel guilty, you'll give more. If I make you feel guilty, you'll serve more. And I would just tell you this. That is never going to be the desire or the motivation or the the way that Crossroads is ever going to do it. And there's a couple of reasons. One, guilt and shame are short-term motivators. Like you might feel that guilt and respond to it for a very brief time, but you're not going to stick with it. Because what we really want for you is the same thing God wants for you. We want freedom for you. And I will tell you right now, That the freedom that you can experience through Jesus Christ, the freedom that comes from the gospel, the freedom that God wants to take and lift the weight of guilt and shame off of you will motivate you to do what God wants you to do with your life better than any guilt or shame motivation ever could. And that's what we want to talk about today because God wants to lift and release that weight from some of you this morning. And it's going to be, I think, for a lot of people, potentially a very powerful morning because Jesus wants you free from unnecessary guilt and soul-crushing shame. Let's jump into our notes. What is guilt? Well, guilt is a lot of things. We usually kind of identify it most by the feeling, right? Guilt is the feeling you get in the pit of your stomach when you are driving down the road and the red and blue lights come on behind you. And you know there's no way you're going to talk yourself out of it because you were going, I don't know, like 85 miles an hour over the speed limit. So you are guilty, it's the feeling you get when a friend rejects you because you gossiped, gossiped, gossiped behind their back and violated their trust. You're guilty. When a coworker has to get you written up because you're doing things you're not supposed to be doing, you're guilty. Or it's the feeling you get when your child begins to cry because you're screaming in anger and have lost self-control. You're guilty. Or it's the feeling you get when you break yet another promise to your spouse because you said you'd never do it again, and you did, and you're guilty. And what happens in that moment is the enemy wants to come in and look at you and say to you, you're a believer, or at least you claim to be, but I'm not going to let you live the life of a believer. Let me explain what I mean by that. As Christians, as believers, we are really good at helping people understand that you can be saved from your sin. What we're bad at is understanding the freedom and the life and the joy that comes as being a follower of Christ. And I want you to experience that. God wants you to experience that. But instead, Satan will come in and he'll go, hey, you know what? I know you call yourself a believer, but I'm going to make your life a living hell. As a matter of fact, I booked a cruise for us. I got you a room that you're going to be comfortable in, beautiful stateroom. Everything is going to be taken all care of. I want you to be willing to never leave this cruise that I've got you on. The two of us are going on a guilt trip together, and we're going to stay on it. See, guilt is either going to lead you to that cruise, that guilt trip, or it's going to lead you to the cross and freedom and joy. The important thing for us to understand is that not all guilt is bad. So, what is good guilt or healthy guilt? Well, healthy guilt is like a check engine light on your car. Like you're driving around, everything's fine, and then that light comes on your car. You thought everything was going good, but then that pops up and reveals there's a problem you can't see, or maybe you don't want to see, that is going on in the engine of your car. And if you don't deal with it, you're going to have much bigger problems later. Well, guilt is the check engine light of your heart, where God is going, hey, this thing's lit up, there's something we need to look at. There's a relationship that needs help. There's a behavior that needs changed. There's an addiction that needs to be broken. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, the Apostle Paul is writing, he says, for godly grief, part of this word is rooted in the same word as guilt in their language, for godly grief or guilt produces repentance. Repentance is a turnaround. It's a breakthrough. And he tells us where it leads. That leads to what, Church. Oh, come on. The 1045 service, y'all have had like 18 cups of coffee already. It leads to what? Salvation. Salva- there you go. Salvation. And I love this. Without regret. That's good news. But worldly grief, and here's, let me help give you a quick distinguishing mark between godly grief and godly guilt and worldly grief and worldly guilt. Um, sometimes when that's worldly, you're not, you're not bothered by what you did. You're upset because you got Caught. And that's worldly grief or guilt, and that produces not salvation, but death. And the reason I want to talk about this is because in here today, there are people in this room that you are eat up with guilt and shame, and it's killing you. But healthy guilt is conviction, and conviction is good. Good. Conviction motivates us to action. Conviction pushes us in to hard conversations. Conviction will convince me to swallow my pride. It'll convince me to change and say I'm sorry. As a matter of fact, if you can't remember the last time that you felt convicted, that's not good because it's good for you. Shame is different. Shame is guilt past its expiration date. How many of you have ever opened up your milk and pulled it out, and you're like, I didn't know we were making yogurt this morning. Like, It's gross. Or I don't know if you, about you. When I was a kid, um, our family went through a time of being fairly broke, and so we, uh, we bought bologna. We didn't just buy bologna. We would sometimes buy bologna in bulk. Anybody ate bologna off a log? Anybody been there? Okay, some of the kids are like, what's bologna? Uh, so I will tell you, I'm not sure that bologna is actually meat. I can guarantee you this, though. It's not supposed to have hair on it. And that happens if you leave bologna alone too long. Like it's expired and it becomes unappetizing. It used to be good, once, but it's not anymore. That's what unresolved guilt will do, it leads to shame. And yet I want us to know this, there is not one place in God's word, not one that exists where God has the desire to use shame to pin you down. Instead, he wants to set you free. If you want to look at even the root of this, you can go all the way back to Genesis chapter 2, verse 25. God makes and creates the Garden of Eden. Everything is perfect. Everything is going exactly the way it should go. And then he makes man and woman, and they are both naked, and they are in the garden, and everything is great. And it literally says, this is God's perfection. They felt no shame. That's the way God created the world. That part was never supposed to be there. It is unnatural to us to have shame in our life. Shame is a result of brokenness. And what happens when we sin, when we break everything, is we do the same thing Adam and Eve did. The moment that they sinned against God and shame entered the world, the first thing they did was hide. It's the same thing we do. We hide. We put on our masks. We do whatever we have to do to be hidden But I want to tell you, for some of you that right now you've spent so much of your emotional and spiritual energy in the hiding, here's what I need you to hear today. God wants to give you back everything the enemy has stolen from you. And he stole your freedom, he stole your connection to God, he stole all that, he introduced us to sin and brokenness and God wants to give it back. Author Carl Jung says this, shame is a soul-eating emotion. And it's eating away at a lot of people right now. Maybe it's something you did, something you've done, or maybe it's something that was done to you, and it's been a long, 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 long time, but you're still living with shame. You were a kid, and an adult that you trusted said or did something they never should have done, and now you're in bondage to shame. Your marriage fell apart, and you, on your end, did everything you possibly could to keep it together. And it didn't work. And not only are you divorced, but you think the way everyone views you is a divorcee. It's become who you are. You walked away from God. You walked away from church. Because the only feeling you ever got in it was guilt and shame. When you came to church looking for hope, you walked away feeling worse than you did when you got there because you came in and they heavily leveraged guilt and shame, but no one told you about hope and redemption. And now because of that, you view God as a policeman or an IRS agent waiting to pounce. See, Jesus is a master at speaking truth into people's lives in a way that also showed them that they were worthy and they were loved. So I want to look at a a breakthrough case study on shame. John chapter eight, if you've got your Bible, I want you to grab that and you can read along with me. We're going to read through several verses and talk about them a little bit before we get back into the notes. Um, Or if you've got the app, you can pull it up on there and we can dive into it together. John chapter eight, starting in verse two, it says, and he, this is Jesus, went up to the temple again and all the people were coming to him and he sat down and he began to teach them. And then the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in the act of committing adultery, making her stand at the center. Now, many theologians have pointed this out over the years. If she was caught in the act, where's the dude? I am not a biology expert, but in order to be caught in the act, there needs to be somebody else there. I don't know why they didn't bring him. Maybe he was a Pharisee. Who knows? Teacher, they said to him. This woman was caught in the act of committing adultery. and the law, of Moses commands us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? And they asked this to trap him in order they might have evidence to accuse him. Now you might go, well, how are they trapping him? What does this mean? Well, Jesus is sitting there and he's preaching to people. He's telling them about the gospel. He's telling them about the love that Jesus Christ will bring into your life. And then they approach him and they've got a woman caught in the act of committing adultery that according to the law should be stoned to death. And so they know that they've trapped him. Or at least they think they have. And the trap means this, if he says, hey, we should go ahead and stone her, that's what the law says, well, all the people listening to him talk about love are going to go, well, we're out of here, because, you know, it's not the most loving thing to do to stone somebody to death. But if he says, let's go ahead and stone her, or uh, uh, let's stone stone her, then they can actually stone him along with her, because he is also breaking the law of Moses by affirming what she's doing. So they go, we got him. We got him either way. No matter what he says, we got him. Here's what it says. So Jesus stooped down and started writing on the ground with his finger. What a great response. He bends down and starts writing in the dirt. I have no idea what that's going to make them feel like, but I'm not recommending that you try this. But if you're ever in an argument with your spouse, for example, they ask you a question, writing in the dirt will probably get under their skin. It's not going to go good for you. You're not Jesus. I'm just saying. So he stoops down, starts writing in the dirt, verse 7. And when they persisted in questioning him, he stood up and said to them, the one without this sin, the one without this sin among you should be the first to throw a stone at her the one of you that has never lusted the one of you that has never committed adultery the one of you that has never rejected and dishonored the word of god the one of you that has never broken a commandment the one of you that has never defiled anything of god in your heart your mind or your flesh you pick up the rocks and start throwing them verse 8 And then he stooped down again and continued writing on the ground. We have no idea what he wrote. Maybe the names of their girlfriends. I have no idea. (laughs) So when they heard this, they left one by one, (laughs) starting with the older men. Only he was left with the woman in the center. And when Jesus stood up, he said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, Lord, she answered. Neither do I condemn you, said Jesus. Go, and from now on, do not sin anymore. I want you to imagine, if you would, for a moment, your worst sin, your worst moment. The one that you're reluctant to even fully disclose to God in the privacy of your prayer life. And I want you to imagine that moment being played out in public for everyone to see. The shame that this woman feels, how unacceptable she feels, is overwhelming. Again, shame is going to be this, this mixture of either what you did or what was done to you. But there's a big difference between guilt and shame. See, guilt says, I did something wrong. Shame says, I am something wrong. Shame says, if you failed, you're a failure. If you lose, you're a loser. If you made a mistake, you're a mistake. If you are jobless, you are worthless. Do you hear the lie of identity that shame tells? Guilt says, I regret what I did. Shame says, I regret who I am. Guilt will actually push us towards God for his grace and his mercy. Shame will pull us away from God, believing that God wants nothing to do with us. Guilt is feeling conviction over unconfessed sin, which actually can be very healthy for us in our life. But shame, there's a a word that personifies shame in Scripture. It is the word condemnation. And condemnation is this, I've confessed, but I still feel a sense of shame. Shame. I know that God has saved my soul. I know that he said he'd forgive me, but I still carry the weight. I still carry all the baggage of my guilt, all the past, all the sin, all the shame, that Jesus nailed it to a cross, but I went and pulled it back down and decided to carry it for myself. And when we do, we're believing a lie. See, the irony of the story I just read is that Jesus could have thrown the first stone. You ever thought about that? He says, let he who hath not this sin cast the first stone. The only sinless person in the group, Jesus. He's the only one with a right to pick up the stone. But he doesn't. See, we tend to think that God is like that, where he just wants to come and wound us and start throwing stuff at us, but that is not true. In John chapter 3, verse 17, and I know everybody is really big on John chapter 3, verse 16. And listen, it's a great song. It's a top tenor, I promise you. But if you don't read the rest of the Bible, I just need you to know. John chapter 3, verse 16, awesome. Chapter 3, verse 17, also a banger. That's all I'm saying. Here's what John 3, 17 says. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Come on, can I get a good amen this morning, church? I, I feel like I feel like ten forty-five is a little bit of sleep. I'm just going to warn you. Nine o'clock was hype, man. Those people were ready, and so I want to get you guys in there with us. See, here, here's the deal. When we hear this, we go, "Oh, I love hearing about the grace and mercy." But there's a tension then that we feel. Where does the truth come in, Jason? I, I got to tell you guys, there's there's really only two things about preaching in front of you that makes me nervous. But I'm nervous every week, every single week. I've been doing this for 28 years, and there has never been a time that I've stood up here that I don't feel nervous. The first reason is one that has grown and gotten bigger over and over again in my life as I have walked through ministry, and that is the realization that I stand up here, I will give an account to God for how I've led, for how I've taught, that there is a weight that should come with making sure that we teach the Word of God truthfully and accurately. And I need, I want that weight because it's when you feel that weight that you make sure that you are doing it the right way for the right reasons, the right motivations. So that's one of it. The other one is this, if I could just be honest, sometimes I have to tell you, sometimes I have to tell me things we don't want to hear. Preaching is a little bit like standing in oncoming traffic. I know it's gonna hurt, but I love you. I know, listen, I, I said this... Last week, craving approval, that ran all over me, but I needed to hear it. I want to make sure that we love each other enough to tell the truth, because here's the deal. It's not just your life. How many of you, don't, don't raise hands, but I just want to ask you, how many of you right now, you, you, know, you, you know about your life, but you also know somebody else's life, and you've seen the check engine light on their life on Like, you see it headed in the wrong direction. You see that it's headed for disaster. But we go into this place where we go, well, Jason, I don't want to talk to them about it because I don't want them to think that I'm judgmental. Or, Jason, I would love to talk to them about it, but I don't want them to think that I don't love them. I love this story because in this story, Jesus loves by exposing the sin. See, it's only in exposing the sin that we experience the freedom and the salvation. We need to know the sin so that we can know how desperately we need a Savior. And that's what Jesus leads us to. Jesus is going to tell the woman two statements that he wants you and I to hear today. And the first one is this, go and sin no more. He doesn't say, it's fine. No biggie. It's whatever. whatever. Can I tell you, I think in church sometimes, we we often emphasize the love of God, and we should, rightfully so. If we're going to emphasize something, the love of God is a great thing to emphasize. But we sometimes emphasize the love of God while ignoring the righteousness of God. God has not just called us to understand love. God has called us to understand that he is calling us to righteousness. That his love for us, it was supposed to be so transformative that it gave us a desire, an appetite, a drive to go and live our life for him. He does not tell her, don't change a thing. He doesn't say, oh, sweetie, you are perfect just the way you are. He doesn't do that at all. He doesn't look at her and redefine sin to make it easier on her. He loved her too much to do that. He says, go and sin no more. Go and sin no more because there's things in your life that need to be stopped. I was reading a story of a pastor who was doing a conference for marriages. They were, nobody was supposed to bring kids. It was supposed to be a kid-free environment. They were going to do some challenging thing with marriages. And there was a bunch of married couples in the room, but one couple apparently either didn't get the memo or babysitting fell through because their five-year-old came with them. And the pastor's sitting there, and he said, I was teaching, and I decided to ask a question. It was supposed to be one of those hypothetical questions that you ask and no one answers. He said... By the way, anybody ever had that happen when your kid said something you're like, oh my goodness. Yeah. He said, how many families have been destroyed? He How many families in this room have been destroyed by repeated sexual sin? And the little kid said, five. <laughs> I don't know if he's about to start pointing them out. I have no idea. Sadly, the number is much higher See, there is a reason that God says, I love you enough to tell you, stop. Because it causes damage. There are things that we detest, and the intent is to stop going to them. I will give you an example. I do not like plant-based hamburgers. (laughs) I'm just going to throw this out there. Uh, I'm not anti-plant, I'm pro-plant, thank you, got testimony over here on this side too, I'm pro-plant. I'm I'm a big fan. I like veggies in their correct state. When you mash them up and try to masquerade as meat, I'm out. Uh, As a matter of fact, a couple of years ago, JD um, brought uh, two burgers into my office because I had made a boast that I could easily tell McDonald's new plant-based burger from the real thing. And I didn't know they were (laughs) going to do this. They bring them into my office, and they put two in front of me, and they open it up. I didn't even eat one yet, and I went, that one, that's the liar right there. And they were like, how do you know? And I said, because I've spent more than 40 years eating meat. I'm somewhat of an expert. That's not meat. And then I put it in my mouth and confirmed my suspicions. It was not meat. Now, again, I am pro-plant. What I am not okay with is plants masquerading as and impersonating meat. You are not meat. You will never be meat. Stop trying to pretend to be meat. Stay in your lane. Okay. Okay, hold on. This is why I love our church. I'm sitting here preaching on the gospel and shame, silence. We're going against veggies, and they're like, amen, he's preaching now. Let's get him. Woo! Bring it out, Jason. That's why I love you guys. You're nuts. Here's the deal. If you eat a food you don't like, you don't eat it again. Why is it then when it comes to our sin— do we keep going back to it? Proverbs twenty six eleven says, as a dog returns to its vomit, gross, <laughs> so a fool repeats their folly. Anybody in here ever promise God you're not going to do that thing again and then do it again? I'll confess to it. See, we need truth about sin. We need truth about forgiveness. We all need that in our life, and there are people that we love that need to hear it, and Jesus models how. But a couple of really important notes that I don't want us to miss. One, we as a church, we want to deliver the truth of Jesus with the tone of Jesus. And if we don't, we have failed. See, Jesus can deal with our sin, but he is not going to tolerate our self-righteousness. You are not better than anybody else. If you approach somebody else to confront something in their life and you are self-righteous, you need to stop immediately. Because when we approach somebody, we don't approach them from a place of superiority. We approach them from a place of brokenness that we also sinned and fell short of the glory of God, and we do not stand in front of them better than them. We stand in front of them wanting to teach them and bring them to the same saving grace of Jesus Christ that we got the chance to experience. That's the tone we approach this in. But also, and this is not fun news, but it is important, when we are dealing with these things in our life, forgiveness is permanent. It's immediate. It happens immediately when Jesus saves you. But the effect of sin is persistent. And it's important that we know that. When you lie, people may forgive you, but they still, at that point, may question your trustworthiness. If you commit sexual sin, you might be forgiven, but there's also consequences, See, the important thing that we need to understand when he says go and sin no more, he is first and foremost protecting his message, his mission, his kingdom. He is second, protecting your life in the direction it's headed and also other people too. See, those people that walk into my office, they walk into you and they go, well, I have this sin that I struggle with, but my sin doesn't hurt anyone else. Can I tell you, there is not a sin that has been created that doesn't hurt other people. There are always Bystanders that are wounded by our sin. Don't believe that lie. So Jesus says, go and sin no more. Make much of the mission. Don't wound yourself or others in the process. The second thing he tells her is, you are not condemned. He says, where are your accusers? She says, uh, there is none. He says, neither do I condemn you. She, see, she expects judgment. She knows the law. She expects judgment to come, but instead she receives Do you know how powerful it is to expect judgment and receive mercy? It is life-changing. There's a lady, I think she's in Oklahoma, and she goes into like Target, Walmart, whatever, and when she goes in, um, she's looking for a specific scenario of moms and children. Have you ever had one of your kids lose their ever-loving mind in a store? I mean, meltdown on the floor, kicking, screaming, crying, and then you know, you know everybody that walks past you is going, well, somebody needs to get control of their kids. <laughs> or they're sitting there thinking, hmm, looks like somebody needs to learn how to deliver a whooping is what that looks like. I mean, we've all uh, you expect judgment, right? Well, this lady has made a ministry out of getting $5 Starbucks gift cards and finding those moms in the middle of a moment with their kids in tears and walking up to them and going, hey, it's hard, and we can't always control them. But I wanna believe the best in you, and I wanna believe you're trying with everything you have. Do me a favor, take this. On your way out, get a cup of coffee. Know that somebody cares. It's gonna be a long day, but we're here for you. I'm praying for you. And all of a sudden, it's no longer the kid crying in Target, it's the mom. <laughs> because she expected judgment, and she got mercy. And it's unbelievable when that happens. Grace will beat the brakes off your shame. It will cancel our guilt. That's why Romans 8:1, 1, one of my favorite verses in all Scripture, therefore there is now, right now, immediately, no, zero, zip, nada, zilch, no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. I don't know if you've ever seen a condemned building, but literally the definition of condemned means unfit for use. What happens when you feel condemned is Satan wants to fill your heart, your mind with so much shame and condemnation that you believe you are unfit for use, you're unfit to ever walk into a church, you're unfit to be loved by the King of Kings. But you need to hear this morning, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And that is something that can set us free. Jesus never, never leveraged shame To change anyone's life. See, there's so many of us, we we live in shame and we hear the voice of Satan, but honestly, we also hear the self-talk. And it begins to erode our identity. It's, It's this what it's what it sounds like. Maybe you recognize these words in your own mind. I would be worthy if I could just get sober. If I just got that scholarship, if I could get that level of salary, if I could get the approval from that person that I so desperately want. Or if I could finally get pregnant, then I'd be worthy. Or what if they only knew? I mean, if they only knew all the stuff that I did when I was in college, if they knew what I did on my last business trip, if they knew the search history to my iPhone, if they knew about the DUI, which wasn't that long ago, if they knew about the emotional affair or the addiction, they and God would want nothing to do with me. I'm not enough. I'm not qualified. I am Worthless. And if you, I, I just listen, if you are thinking that today, I want you to hear this, even if you don't feel it, even if it's hard for you to believe. And that is that Jesus is not sweeping your sin under the rug. His grace removes guilt and begins to redefine who you are. Jesus made that statement on the cross that He has the ability to forgive you. He knows about your past, He knows what you did, He knows what was done to you. You think that's who you are. And because of that, you are unworthy. But that is not your identity. You do not have to hide. You do not have to stay in the shadows. You do not have to put on the masks. You do not have to be remembered as the person who blew it or failed or was condemned. You can be remembered as the child of the Most High God. An heir to the inheritance of everything. You can have purpose in his mission. You can stop living in the shadows. You don't have to hide your story. You can reveal your story. And when you reveal your story and the lost world sees it, what they're gonna see is a life transformed. And when they see that God can change your life, they're gonna begin that He to believe He can change theirs. And there's power in it. You can get off the guilt trip and know that you're loved. You can lay down the cloak of shame and get a breakthrough with Jesus. Now, I know when I say this, some people are going, Ah, Jason, I got some work to do before I can come to Jesus. I got some work to do before I can come to church. Or Here's one of my favorite ones. When people uh, roll into church and they go, uh, I, I wouldn't come to church, or if I did. Some of y'all may have thought this this morning. If I ever come into church, we've all heard this. If I ever come, to, come into church, the roof would probably cave in on that place. Can I tell you something after 28 years of ministry that I finally figured out and I want to say to you in love? Uh, you're giving yourself way too much credit. <laughs> you're not that great of a sinner. You are not a powerful enough sinner to negate his grace. Paul made the claim that he was the worst of sinners and God's grace got to him. Hebrews 12 will tell us that Jesus took on our shame. And defeated it. That in the boxing ring of our life, he walked into the ring with our shame and delivered a knockout blow to that shame. In Isaiah 54, 4, he says, Fear not, you will no longer live in shame. Do not be afraid. There is no more disgrace for you. See, I believe that it is time for some people in this room to experience a breakthrough. But it's going to come at a cost. There's a challenge to this. See, you are only as sick as your secrets. Several years ago, I I read uh, some of these to some folks, and it still exists. There's a website called Post Secret. It's people who post their deepest, darkest secrets online. You can go and look this website up and read them, and it's total anonymity. Here's how they got my attention. I remember reading this one. A woman posted this. When I am mad at my husband, I put boogers in his soup. That is gross, and ladies, if you just got an idea, stop it. Another one said, I hate people who include me in group texts. You okay over there? Just checking on you. Clearly a barista, um, I give decaf to customers who are rude to me. (laughs) Like the barista is self-diagnosing, you need to chill. Like that's what's happening. Um my, my best friend and I hated going to church, so we always clapped uh, on the offbeat to annoy everybody. <laughs> so now I'm in a dilemma as a pastor. Are some of you trying to do that, or are you just that rhythmically challenged when we clap? <laughs> I wish my father had forgiven me while he was still alive. I wish I was blind, so I wouldn't have to look at myself in the mirror. My husband doesn't know that he's raising his best friend's child. My favorite one, though, I told all my secrets and now I'm free. See, God's grace is greater than the guilt of our secrets. He wants us to let it go. Get honest with God. Find some trusted people that you can get honest with about and remove the power from your secrets. See, we talk about repentance and confession in church all the time, but so many people still see them in a negative connotation. Repentance and confession are not negative. Repentance and confession are a doorway through which God comes to us. It opens us up to him. 2 Corinthians five twenty one said, For God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering for our sin so that we could be made right with God through Christ. In other words, all the work we needed to do to get our broken self to him was done, completed by him. And because of that, I know that he already loves me. Because of that, I know he has my best interests in mind. Proverbs twenty-eight, thirteen says, people who conceal their sin will not prosper. But if they confess and turn from them, they will receive mercy. See, for those that are suffocating under the weight of guilt and shame, here's the word I want you to hear today. Breathe. Let me break this down as an acronym for you this morning. It goes like this. B is for brokenness. That we acknowledge that I am a sinner and I have a need for a Savior. I recognize the power of the cross in my life to close the gap between me and God. R is for relinquished control. Can we please stop trying to manage our own sin and just come clean and let God be the one that manages that? Evaluate. Evaluate myself with radical honesty. Look at myself and be completely transparent and vulnerable about what I need God to do in my life. A, amends. Make amends with people that I have wronged due to my sin. Go to them and have the courage and humility to say I am sorry. Thinking that I want to think in a whole new way. The Bible says that we can be transformed by the renewing of our mind. Get rid of the self-talk that is negative and fill it with the truth of the word of God. H, heal. That we begin to heal. We heal through the power of Jesus Christ from our past, from our pain, from our shame, from our guilt. And can I tell you what that leads to? I love people come up to me and they go, Jason, I really love Crossroads. Everybody just seems happy. And I go, yeah, do you know why? Jesus. Because when broken people feel the weight of shame and guilt lifted off of them, why wouldn't we celebrate? And then lastly, E, encourage. Encourage others with your story. I'm almost done, but there's a a thing that actually came to my mind this morning. It's a way I think there's probably some people sitting here thinking about this message today and they think, well, Jason... I really wish I could do this, I really wish I could experience it. I acknowledge that maybe God can forgive me, but I can't forgive myself. Can I tell you what you need to hear this morning? If you're sitting here going, I can't forgive myself, here's the secret that will set you free. You never could. You never could. Ask yourself the question in your entire life as you have tried to forgive yourself, how has that gone? You still live in guilt and you still live in shame. The reason is because you never had the power to forgive yourself in the begin, to begin with. But here's the deal, and I don't want us to miss the truth of this. Here's the beauty of the gospel is that while you are in a position where you cannot forgive yourself, Jesus did, what only he could do. He climbed up on the cross and in looking through future, he looked dead into your eyes and said, "Father, forgive them, they do not know what they are doing." When you couldn't, he did. And that's why you have freedom. That's the breakthrough. That's the sound of the chains falling off your life. And let me tell you, when the chains that fell off your life at the cross fell, they hit so hard that the sound shook hell. And you had the ability to walk out free. King David struggled with this in his life, and I want to read a psalm of his over us as we close. Psalm 32. Oh, what joy for those whose disobedience is forgiven, whose sin is put out of sight. Yes, what joy for those whose record the Lord has cleared of guilt, whose lives are lived in complete honesty. When I refused to confess my sin, my body wasted away, and I groaned all day long. Day and night, your hand of discipline was heavy on me. My strength evaporated like water in the summer heat. Finally, which means it took a while. I confessed all my sins to you and stopped trying to hide my guilt. I said to myself, I will confess my rebellion to the Lord and you, what church? You forgave me and all my guilt, all my shame, all my brokenness, hopelessness is gone. That promise is not just true for David, it's true for you and I. Let Jesus handle your secrets and he will take care of your shame. I I, want to end this way. If I can be honest with you for just a moment as a, as a pastor, one of the things that I never want us to do, and that frustrates me when I, when I see, because uh, sometimes it can happen, where church can become this, this series of services that you're trying to crank out, and you're trying to get things in a certain amount of time, and you're trying to get everything right, and sometimes, oh, with all good intentions, what gets lost is the vulnerability, the honesty, the response, So we're going to have one today. We're going to have a moment of response where I'm going to ask for courage from you. And I'm going to be honest, I'm starting with every person that would consider themselves a leader as a Christian. The Bible will call us to confession and repentance, and so we're going to do just that today. I can't stand the thought of, and I'm not saying that this is a thing, I'm just saying I don't ever want to be the one who pastors a church that in the end becomes plastic, That we're not real about the stuff we need to be real about. See, what's so powerful when we respond to something is that it tells the rest of the people in the room that God is working on other people. It's not just me, I'm not the only one struggling. Other people are struggling too, but they're also trusting in and relying on God. And that's what I wanna do. And so I'm gonna ask you to do something that we grew up in church doing. We're gonna have a moment where we have an altar call. And an altar call, a time of prayer. I'm gonna ask you in a moment to come here. And if you've got some sort of guilt and shame, you wanna to confess to the Lord, we're not gonna know what that is. No one's gonna put a scarlet letter on your chest or a sign above you that says what your stuff is, but you're gonna come out of a moment with God. And don't come sit here and just be silent. Actually talk to God about the sin and shame you carry and say, God, I've carried it long enough. You, you, <laughs> it's yours. It's yours. And, and I will tell you, this is not a magic space. It's not like, well, hey guys, I mean, you know, the Holy Spirit only works six feet from the stage. That's not what this is about. It's about a public confession to God. And I believe that public repentance shows how secure we are in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so I'm going to ask you, first of all, just to stand up right where you are. I'm going to ask the band to begin to play. I'm going to ask for anybody right now maybe it's you maybe it's your marriage maybe it's whatever it is but you need to come and bend your knee and get on with people are already moving and you can go ahead and move too if you want to go ahead and come but you're going to come and just hit your knees and begin to cry out to God on your own as we sing call out to him repent confess I'm going to tell you there are many still sitting in your seat as soon as I'm mean, listening as soon as you get felt compelled to move don't be this person move Come and confess those things, sin, guilt, shame. Let him remove them from you this morning. We're going to pray. You move and respond. We're going to sing. You move and respond. God, give us courage right now. Come on.